Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for joining. Um, if you have been with us for the last couple of weeks, you know that we're still early in our series on the Gospel of John. So we're a, a couple chapters in. And the point where we're at in the narrative now is that uh, Jesus has just visited Jerusalem to celebrate the high holiday of Passover. And uh, last week, um, Kevin talked about how uh, Jesus made a scene at the temple in Jerusalem and overturned it, uh, causing a ruckus. And then this story that we're going to talk about today uh, is a, a famous story, the story between uh, dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus. This occurs uh, after that uh, event in the flow of the narrative. So well, let's go. We'll read our story today and then we'll break it down and uh, see what we can get out of it and navigate um, the all the different directions that the dialogue will go. So let's uh, let's start reading through it now. In John chapter 3, it begins, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Oh, thanks. You're so sweet. You're a great teacher, too. No. He doesn't do that. Jesus goes hard in these dialogues. So his reply is, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You're Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. This is actually not the end of this section of the story uh, between Jesus and Nicodemus, but we'll stop there for now to uh, navigate through the, the questions and responses we've had so far, and then we'll, we'll go through the very end of this, this uh, section in the very end. So first, before we even start talking about Nicodemus's great questions, I think it's helpful to to pause and level set on some things that we just read that, you know, maybe uh, aroused uh, negative reactions in you or at least just provoked you to think through some things. So, for example, uh, some people, when they read this, they notice the line where Jesus says, you people, um, you know, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I think it's actually helpful for us to be clear on who you people is uh, in this situation because I think there, there have been many readings over the centuries where the way this narrative flows and the way the Gospel of John talks about the, um, the, the group that Jesus is addressing the most uh, in his teachings, that it may make you think that the opponents or enemies 
in this uh, in this narrative are Jews or Pharisees in particular, right? That maybe that crossed your mind uh, when we were going through it. And the the stakes get higher too when you see other passages in the Gospel of John that that seem to be suggesting that that's the case. One example uh, later on in the Gospel of John that comes up. So this is uh, a passage right after uh, Jesus has died. He was executed on the cross where it says, Later Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. That's how the text reads. So you read that and you would say, okay, so the, the teams that we have here is Jesus and his disciples versus the Jews. And of course, that kind of dichotomy doesn't make sense because this is your weekly reminder that Jesus himself was Jewish, right? It's very easy to just slip into forgetting that when you read a, a text like this. And this raises questions too. It's not, it's not just in particular of saying that, that the Jews are allegedly the problem. Uh, often it's construed as it's the Pharisees in particular that are a problem. That's what we, we know about Nicodemus, right? So some of the things that, that were introduced to us in this very passage are Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a member of the ruling council. He was a teacher of Israel, right? That's the, the phrasing that's used for him. And in that context, um, I'm, I'm sure that if you're familiar with the term Pharisee, then you are very likely familiar with that term being used in a very derisive way. There is an industry of books and sermons and preaching and reflections on, uh, on the, the terrible plight that it is to be a Pharisee or have a Pharisaic mindset towards religion or faith. Right. There's there's a ton of stuff out there that is like that. The the problem, though, that we have to deal with there is that uh, so far as we can tell, um, Jesus probably was a Pharisee himself. We base that on a number of things. But uh, a lot of it is if, if you look at the nature of the debates between Jesus and Pharisees, they actually agree on quite a many premises when they engage in their debate. Not only that, much of the much of the the debates between Jesus and Pharisees look like they're coming from people who are in the same in-group. That's why the disconnect between Jesus and the Pharisees is so devastating to both of them, because there's this there's this assumption that in, the, in that case, either side thinks you should have known better if you were a part of this movement. On top of that, there is the reality that the person who wrote most of the letters in our New Testament is a Pharisee. And I mean that purposefully, not was a Pharisee, is a Pharisee. We often talk about the Apostle Paul as if um, when he, uh, you know, that he used to be a Pharisee, he maybe he used to be Jewish, and then he became Southern Baptist or whatever it is, like your version of, of Christianity that, that he became. And that meant him being ashamed of his past or disavowing his prior identity, but that never happens. In, in the book of Philippians, this is a letter that Paul writes. Here's how he describes himself. He, he calls, he, when he lists out his credentials, he says, he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. Um, the book of Acts also describes Paul uh, in similar terms, has Paul describing himself that way, where in the book of Acts, Paul is saying, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. So he's saying this when he's in Jerusalem. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. 
the Apostle Paul, so far as we can tell from his letters, was ashamed of many things that he did uh, before he became a follower of Jesus. But being a Pharisee was not one of those things. He is one today. When you see him in the world to come, he will still be a Pharisee. So think about what you say about Pharisees now. You might have to have a dialogue with him when that happens, right? These are things that you we have to keep in mind to level set when you when you hear language that seems to suggest that Jews or Pharisees in particular are the outgroup here in this text. So if you know if this conflict is not one of Jew versus Gentile, which I think, again, organically makes sense. The Gospel of John itself is a testimony from a Jewish person who is describing, to the extent that they're describing conflicts, they're describing conflicts between some Jews and other Jews, right? There's no Jew versus Gentile backdrop uh, in this story at all. This is still early in the Jesus movement uh, that we're dealing with these texts. We're dealing with an in-house debate among Jewish people. And the, um, the so, it, you know, it raises the question, well, well then, then who is the, the outgroup or the antagonist that keeps harassing Jesus uh, at every turn of his ministry? Um, there have been uh, several different ways to think of, like when the Gospel of John says, for fear of the Jews, or it's because of the Jews that, that there is this challenge. Um, there, there are some ways to think through, a, like a more accurate way to describe what that is. Uh, a couple weeks ago, Pastor Danielle raised this, this alternative to think about the, for that word itself that the text uses when it says for fear of the Jews, for example, to think about it as not referring to this people group of all, all people of all time who, who belong to this religious ethnic identity, but it's describing, it's more talking about the people of the region, uh, some of whom are from that region and some of the people who are not. I think that's definitely one very fine way to, to deal with that, that issue. Some translations for that reason will actually say uh, Judeans instead of Jews when, when you're reading that text. I think another dimension that I would add to, add to on top of that is the fact that um, you, in this text, like we've been talking about, you have some Jewish people who are the ones that the text is saying were afraid of the Jews. So it can't possibly mean all Jews, where, you know, that, that, like that, that on itself doesn't make sense. When you realize in context what's going on, uh, I would argue that what's actually happening is the phrase there, the Jews, seems like it's a stand-in, it's a shorthand for the religious establishment or the religious leaders of that time. That's actually who Jesus often ends up combating with in all of his conflicts. And for that reason, too, a lot of translations will, instead of just saying the Jews, like, for example, in the text that, that we read in John 19, they'll say, uh, for fear of the Jewish leaders or for fear of the religious rulers. I think, to me, that's a much better way to, to think through it. So have that in mind as you're going through the text and trying to sort through and keep track of um, what the true challenge is that Jesus is facing. Another thing uh, to, to call out in this case is that, um, the, you know, sometimes we, we read this passage and it fits a pattern of uh, sometimes there are 
religious leaders like Nicodemus who will come to Jesus with questions, but the questions come in bad faith, uh, pun intended. And then they, what's happening is they are trying to trick him. That's usually how it goes. Um, and so sometimes there are ways of reading this text. They kind of read Nicodemus as that kind of person. Like he's, he is, he's come to Jesus, but he's looking to either trip him up or expose him for, for not being a, a rabbi or a great teacher, uh, as the text says. Um, there, there is um, a, a couple things I think we should call out there. Um, you know, in the text itself, part of what um, makes it easy to hate on Nicodemus is the fact that the, the text makes on the surface makes it seem like Nicodemus is missing very obvious truths by asking questions like, ah, how can you be born again? Go back in your mother's womb, right? The, the, the thing, though, that's happening is that the Nicodemus's approach in this story is actually very similar to how other people respond to Jesus's questions throughout all of the gospels where they are failing to understand that there is a deeper nature to the conversation that they're having, that there are layers to the questions that Jesus is asking and Jesus is asking his audience to go one step below what they simply see with their eyes and can sense in the world around them. So that's what's going on here. And we're going to have to circle back to this towards the end, because that, I think, is actually the most helpful way for us to understand why this discussion is so challenging for Nicodemus and why it is should be very challenging for us today. Uh, the other thing, too, is that um, from what we can tell, uh, Nicodemus seems to be asking the like asking these questions and approaching Jesus genuinely. He actually calls Jesus a rabbi at the beginning uh, of this dialogue. And you may be very familiar with that term now, but this in the Gospel of John is actually one of the earliest references that we have to calling someone a rabbi as a title for being a great teacher. It seems to come from from this place of significance of the title. The other thing, too, is that the uh, we have other texts that actually talk about Nicodemus. He shows up again in the Gospel of John. There's a, a text later. So the, actually, in that passage that we just read about Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea being afraid of the Jewish establishment, uh, it, it adds the line, uh, he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. So Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus together actually take Jesus's body, wrap it, and entomb it. Um, so Nicodemus appears to be on a profound journey. And what we have visibility into in John 3 is one step in that deep journey that he's going through. In fact, it's a, it's a testament to the quality of discourse between Pharisees or, or Jewish people in Jesus' circles that they do go at each other with questions so hard. Like we, I think there, there are a lot of cases I think we would like to judge Nicodemus for not understanding such obvious things. But the reality is, is if you were talking to Jesus and he said, I tell you no one's going to enter the kingdom unless they're born again, you would have been like, oh, cool. And that's it. You wouldn't have asked your follow-up question. But good for Nicodemus for going hard at it. He actually asks those questions. That is very admirable. And that's why we have this dialogue today, because he went for it. So let's do it. Let's go with Nicodemus on his questions. Okay. So the, the really, when it comes down to it, the main question, the crux uh, of this text is when, uh, when Nicodemus asks the question, you know, how can someone be born when they are old? 
So this is related to the this challenge of understanding what does it mean to be born again or an alternate way of reading that is what does it mean to be born from above? Okay, so that's that is the key question that we're going to have to try to tackle. The related challenge here is that uh, Jesus uses another phrase in the text right after it to say um, he describes being born again as being born of water and the spirit. All right. So when you hear the phrase born of water and the spirit, what does it mean to be born of water in this context or to, or to put that, that word right next to spirit there? Um, different interpreters uh, throughout history have offered different opinions. I think um, one of the ones that can be common, at least in, in some, uh, some Protestant circles, would be to say, oh, oh yeah, born of water is referring to physical birth and born of the spirit is describing spiritual birth. And so what Jesus is saying is you have to be born, uh, you have to be born physically and you have to be born spiritually. That's, that's what he's saying. Um, I think there is, there are, uh, I think there's a, a primary motivation for trying to take that interpretation, which we'll talk about in a sec, but on its surface, I think that that interpretation is not good. Um, one, uh, like, so just so you follow through on the logic, the idea of being born of water representing physical birth, the idea would be, um, oh, you're, you know how like babies are born in an amniotic sac, right? And when you come out, that's the water, the surrounding water that you are born from. That's how the, the discussion goes. I think other times, um, some interpreters that say oh, it's like being born of semen and that's watery as uh, the way ancients have had talked about it. The, uh, there, there are multiple problems with that. One is that in the text itself, the way we read it being born of water and the spirit together describe bo being born again, right? Those are, those are actually parallel. So it's best to actually think of both of those things together and both of them having to do with whatever Jesus means when he says being born again. The second thing is, is that uh, when we talk about like, hey, you know, what does that weird phrase mean? Uh, we've talked about this many times at Spark where maybe we have a temptation like some people do with this text to look at the phrase born of water and then think about what it could mean in English in the 21st century. But these phrases and associations and words like we talk about all the time have a rich history in Judaism that predated Jesus and the gospel writers usage of it by centuries. So the first question we should ask ourselves is, okay, well then what does it mean? Uh, what, what are different ways that followers of God have used language about the water and the spirit together uh, to describe this kind of phenomenon that we're dealing with right now? So let's let's talk through some of those like iconic examples in uh, in Jesus's audience's mind when they would have been reading through this discussion. So there's a prophet Ezekiel centuries before Jesus who is describing an era of renewal that God's people would experience after having been through the devastation of captivity and a loss of identity. Here's how Ezekiel describes it. Uh, it has God saying, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart of stone and give you, a, I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. There are many passages like this throughout prophetic language of tying this mystical understanding of the spirit 
with water, with a rushing out of water as a victory of God or rebirth or regeneration. Uh, in the Gospel of John itself, later on, uh, John will make an even more explicit connection between water and spirit. So here's what John says just a few chapters after the text that we're reading today. Uh, so this is a different time that Jesus uh, is in town for the holidays. So it says, On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let everyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of ri living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. It's almost as if the author is going out of their way to make sure that you understand the connection that's going on when Jesus is talking about water, right? They, and this, this kind of connection is one that New Testament writers really pull forward and flesh out and take it in their in their own fascinating, interesting directions. So there is a, another letter in the New Testament that historically has been uh, attributed to Paul, where it says, uh, where it has him saying, uh, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, God saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of God's mercy. God saved us through the washing of rebirth, and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom God poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Another powerful connection uh, that a different uh, writer of the New Testament makes is when Peter in 1 Peter says, so first he's, he's describing the story in the audience's mind about when Noah and his family were saved, as the text says, through the water. Uh, they were saved from God's judgment from the, the surrounding area. And so it says, corresponding to that, the baptism, which corresponds to this, in other words, being saved by God through water, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This connection between baptism, water, and the spirit is one that also comes across very clearly in the, some of the texts that we've been talking about and uh, throughout church history. Even in the Gospel of John, so after this section that, we, that we're dealing with where between Nicodemus and Jesus, literally the first thing it says uh, after the dialogue is done, it says after this, Jesus and his, his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized Right. So this is this is on the minds of the people that are reading this text uh, and, and interpreting this throughout history. Right. The, by the time you get to Jesus and Nicodemus having this dialogue, the text has already introduced us to the John's baptism. Right. This is not, uh, you know, Christians did not invent this, uh, this practice, right? This is something that, that would have been familiar to um, the Jewish uh, followers and Jewish, just Jewish people in the stories that we're reading in, in the New Testament. The, the early church and every century since then have really carried forward, keeping all of these images tightly together, like the water, spirit, baptism. In fact, you, it's actually very common to be able to see 
in uh, ancient catacombs, um, artwork uh, on the walls in catacombs that depict um, exactly this kind of connection across all three. So this is uh, an ancient painting uh, in a catacomb of a baptism. And you can actually see there, it, it might be hard to tell, it looks possibly like a monster is throwing up on someone. Uh, but really, it's, it's a dove shooting water from its mouth, baptismal water, onto a person who is being baptized. And this actually ties together multiple images, right? Because we, if you are familiar with other passages that tie the presence of a dove to the Holy Spirit, and you have the our opening lines in Genesis where the Spirit of God hovers over the face of the water, right? These are, these are all tied together, and they have been um, throughout Christian history. So, so that's what you should have in mind when you hear the phrase being born of water and the spirit. So it seems like the author is very tightly connecting baptism, that thing that followers of Jesus do, with receiving the spirit and being born into God's kingdom. And perhaps that might make you nervous depending on what your, uh, what your theological background is or what your priors are. And if what I have shared has, has given you some kind of uh, allergic reaction of, uh, of tying baptism so closely to receiving the Spirit, I'm going to tell you what, uh, what I tell my son before we enter a house with cats and dogs. Take your allergy meds because we got to go there. So... The, for those of you who actually don't understand like where the tension might be coming from, I think many of you might come from a background that reasons through the connection between baptism and salvation as this. The idea goes, uh, because salvation is by God's grace, then you can't physically do anything to initiate or cause your salvation. Because otherwise, that would be earning your salvation. And that's what it means to be saved by faith and not by works. And the logic continues that since baptism is something that you do, something that you physically do, uh, it's a work. So it can't save you. So anytime it looks like the New Testament is connecting baptism with salvation, you've got to come up with a different interpretation, like, you know, amniotic fluid or semen. That's how the approach goes. Um, usually there is a tinge layered onto it saying, um, you know, baptism can't save you because works can't save you. And after all, isn't that what the Catholics did in the 16th century? And isn't that what the Jews were like in the first century, especially the Pharisees? Do you see, you see how that anti-Phariseeism creeps up all over the place? So in everything I just said, in that chain of logic, I'm going to argue that every single of those premises are wrong. And I, I understand, again, depending on where you're coming from, what I'm saying is, is a big deal. But hey, follow, go with me uh, through this for a little bit, and then you, know, you, you and I can be like, a, like Nicodemus, and we, just, we can ask the tough questions and, and hash it out together. The, the, in what I shared, all of those, like those, those premises are wrong for a variety of reasons, but really a lot of it boils down to the fact that this dichotomy that we've made between faith and works, that is a false dichotomy. And it's one that is very modernist and Western 
And it comes from a place of elevating the rational mind as if the thoughts in your head are the highest thing that you can experience rather than like, you know, those lowly things like the things that we do with our bodies. The uh, and much of it comes from taking like 16th century Protestant reformer problems and imputing it back onto first century discussions about that Jesus had. Thankfully, scholarship over the last basically half century has done a great job of deconstructing the, the problems and frankly, the, the anti-Jewishness that comes with that approach. Um, there is, um, you know, the, the, once you can move past that, like once you uh, move away from this, this, uh, like, uh, this tension where you feel like um, it, it's, it's heresy to articulate that anything you do can be like meaningful uh, towards your faith or your salvation or that the things you do, like that, that um, it can't, can't make God re respond to you in spiritual ways. Once we can move past that, I think actually much of the New Testament and the Bible in general can actually start making a lot more sense. A lot of scholars these days have shifted to a language that says that when, when New Testament writers talk about being saved by faith, they don't mean, as many modernists would say, facts that you believe in your head. They mean an allegiance that is embodied in everything about you, with your heart, with your soul, with your mind, and with your body. And that is actually a holistic approach that would have made far more sense to Jesus and his early followers and the people that he dialogued with. There was a, um, uh, to, like, to really crystallize and bring it together how closely these, um, these concepts are associated, uh, there was a time uh, a few years ago at this point where... Um, uh, we were doing a panel, like a, a few of us that were, we were talking about the, the, what, what is the good news and what does it mean for us today? Um, so we, we were talking through, I think at the time it was, it was Pastor Danielle, Pastor Kevin and me. Uh, although I guess, I guess technical director Kevin is what, uh, he was a pa uh, pastor at the time, Kevin, current technical director uh, Kevin was, was there. Where I guess we're just going to have to get, get used to that, that title. Uh, as a oh, I, as a side note, um, there there was a, one time we were at um, like a book discussion at Spark, and um, there, there were you know different people from uh, all over the community engaging in discussion. We were in big breakout groups, and um, one of the questions that we were asking each other was like, "How did you um, hear about this event?" And this person that I was talking with said, um, "Oh, they like they heard about the event from Pastor Kevin." And I said, "Oh, that's great. How do you know Pastor Kevin?" And they, their response was, they're like, oh, oh, I, I, you know, Pastor Kevin, okay, he, he's, he is, he, I met, I met him, I, uh, Kevin is my thought leader. I don't know how else to describe it. So I, I've since then told Kevin that that's what, that's what his title should be. He's underselling it. Say, ex-pastor, technical director, thought leader, Kevin. That's a business card. But back, back to the, the actual story. So uh, after this discussion, uh, a sparker came up and uh, Pastor Kevin and I were talking to each other. And, and the sparker asked, they said, you know, what um, at, at Spark, when somebody is confronted with the truth of the good news and, and they believe it, uh, what, what do we tell them is, is that should be their response. Like what should they do in response to believing the good news? 
And they were just reflecting how they're like, they didn't know if Spark, you know, has any official stance um, or, or anything like that, which, uh, spoiler, it, we don't. But the, um, the, in the way the discussion went, um, Kevin answered first, and he gave this very um, thoughtful, um, fleshed out, like, answer about how, you know, historically that question has come from a place where... Um, you know, like where Christianity really is made out to be about that decision that you make, right? Like the sum total of everything that it means to follow Jesus is to come to a decision to believe in Jesus. And there's a lot of pressure put on people in those church contexts, right? There are altar calls that routinely um, like try to hype you up to make that commitment. And you make that commitment in a very public way. And then you always talk about that commitment, that conversion moment that you had when you were born again and how that can be part of a very toxic culture where people are really, really pressured into this and their faith doesn't really constitute much of anything other than that one decision they made one time. So he gave that answer. And this, uh, the sparker then looked at me and I said, or, or repent and be baptized. So these are, these are two different, uh, I would say, equally correct answers to the question. Obviously, everything that in that answer that Kevin shared is true. It is true to the experience of many of us um, who have been uh, Christians in an American context, especially Protestant ones, for a very long time. Um, and it's also helpful to acknowledge that even though that's true, Nevertheless, we have examples of people literally in the New Testament coming to believe in Jesus, literally asking the question, what should I do? And responses like, repent and be baptized. In fact, the way the rest of this uh, passage goes in the sermon that Peter gives is he, he associates repenting and being baptized with receiving the forgiveness of sins and receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit tying together all of these concepts that we're talking about today. So really, you know, if, if what I've said, everything I've shared so far, if that uh, makes you uncomfortable or challenges long-held assumptions, again, that's fine. Like, I think the, the important thing is, is that we talk about it and that we lean into these questions or alternate perspectives that you may have and treat this as an ongoing dialogue rather than uh, the, the summation of what one should think about the subject. But really, zooming out from just baptism, our tradition really has a rich history of grounding some of our most intensely mystical experiences in like physical things, simple physical concepts that we interact with on a regular basis. For those of you who come here regularly, you may be familiar with another one of those grounded physical experiences that really are channeling something mystical. That is when we take communion. Now, again, just like with baptism, there are these debates around communion about how spiritual the event itself is, right? So you, maybe you even come from traditions that have said, all you're doing when you take communion, is remembering. It's a remembrance is the, the phrase that, that people use to describe it, right? You are you're eating this bread, drinking this juice or wine, and you are remembering something that Jesus did. But alternate perspectives for centuries and from the beginning of the Jesus movement have said that that's not, that's not all that's going on. This, this is a powerfully supernatural thing. 
and again, there's this there's this challenge of this dichotomy where where somebody might wonder like, wait, like, so am I like is uh, am I the one in control here of demanding God to do spiritual things when I take communion? So every time I take it, that means that God is obligated to to make this some kind of mystical event. And again, that kind of dichotomy would not have existed for the early church uh, who who shared these experiences. We're actually going to talk about this more in the the coming weeks in the Gospel of John because Jesus will call himself the bread of life. Uh, and that passage has historically been interpreted uh, in interesting ways. But for now, right, it gives you the idea that there are plenty of experiences like this that we have that we would call thin spaces, like us inhabiting thin spaces, meaning the, there are spaces where, where God's world in heaven and our world on earth are not so far apart, and they're intersecting with each other. And if we had eyes to be able to see beyond just nature as it is, then we would be able to tap into that power and experience that power and share that power with others. We really do this kind of, this kind of, um, we make these kinds of associations, not just in, in like religion and theology and religious practices. This is like kind of our only way for human beings to understand things that are clearly over our heads. Uh, if you follow discussions around universes and multiverses and quantum physics and all that, you will be familiar with uh, articulations of like string theory and waves. Like these are, these are grounded terms that we use to describe unfathomably complicated things, things that we cannot observe or understand with our own minds now, but perhaps we might a lot more in the future. But when we talk about strings and waves, really we're doing the same thing as we do with water and bread. We are, we are using these concrete experiences to articulate a, a supernature, something that is beyond the scope of what we can currently observe. I propose to you that that's what's going on when Jesus is talking with Nicodemus about being born of water and the spirit and what people in our tradition have meant when they are talking about water and spirit that way. The, uh, the connection between uh, water and spirit wouldn't have been that challenging, actually, for Nicodemus to grasp, right, in that discussion. He would have had a history of it. The real challenge that this discussion raises for Nicodemus is him wondering, what am I missing? Like, what, what can I not see because I have not been born again and accessed the spirit in the way that you're describing? That's the challenge. He's a teacher of Israel, and yet Jesus is saying that there is that there there is a way of being that Nicodemus is falling short on and that he needs to understand it. So that actually gets to this last part of our discussion, which is talking about heavenly things. That's what Jesus says. I'm, I'm talking to you about physical things and how, you know, if we're, if we're having trouble with this, how can we talk about heavenly things? So this is, this is where, again, if you, to, to remind you where it comes up in the text, it says, I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. 
So this uh, this is the the last passage of uh, Jesus and Nicodemus actually talking, and then there's a, like an addendum to to the discussion that happens after that. But first, let's let's talk through what's actually going on with uh, Jesus being lifted up and this serpent, uh, this bronze serpent, and and all of that. So there is a story uh, in Nicodemus and Jesus's Bible uh, from the the first five books of the Bible from the Torah in uh, in the book of Numbers. There is uh, an experience that Israelites were having when they were in the wilderness and they were they were cursed by snakes that were coming into their camp and killing many, many Israelites. God gives Moses the solution to the curse, and that is to make a bronze serpent. So like to fashion a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, stick it up. And anyone who looks upon that bronze serpent will be saved. Okay, that's that's how the story goes. It's famously depicted in artwork in many forms. Now, if if you heard that story and you're like, wait a second, can we talk about that story? What's going on there? My response is, stay focused. We gotta we gotta deal with one weird dialogue at a time. But also, um, I think it's, it should be a few years ago at this point. But we did as a Spark Community preach through um, uh, the Book of Numbers, so you can go into the archives and find that the lesson covering that text uh, and dive into it more. Um, what's interesting is because. Because, because the Gospel of John makes this connection between Jesus and this scene in the book of Numbers, artwork, you know, post in the post-Christian era has so routinely, uh, you know, uh, depicted the bronze serpent in a way that m- makes it look like it's like Jesus dying on the cross, right? It ha- follows that traditional pattern. Because for, for a lot of Christians, when they hear that story, they can't help but make that that kind of connection. What I think is going on here is that Jesus is saying the path towards victory, the path towards kingdom, the path towards God being victorious is actually through the Son of Man, a powerful Savior-like figure for Israel, dying on a cross, humiliated by the hands of of his enemies. That, I will tell you, is I think what is very, very hard for Nicodemus to grasp. And it is hard for us to grasp too, because that does not look like victory at all. That looks like utter failure. There is, uh, and it's not surprising then, right, if you recognize what's going on, that Jesus is talking about an upside down way of conquering enemies that, uh, that the next passage makes sense. Here, here's what happens like literally after that in the text. For God so loved the world that God, God gave God's one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send God's son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. I bet you either didn't know or forgot that that famous John three sixteen phrase comes in this discussion. What's being highlighted here is the irony that the way God shows love, 
The way God saves the world, the way God conquers God's enemies is through dying for those enemies. Jesus dying on the cross shows us the clearest example of what God's love looks like. It looks like sacrificing yourself for the sake of others. And if you are Nicodemus or anybody in any establishment ever where you have a level of privilege that you don't want to give up, then you know what it feels like to want to use that privilege and that power to maintain your position rather than to relinquish that privilege and power for the sake of the people who don't have it. That is what's hard for a teacher of Israel and a teacher today to grasp. There is a, a reflection that I had when going through uh, this text where, where the, part, the problem for Nicodemus and for all of us too today is to anchor so heavily on the world the way that we see it, like with our own eyes and experience it, that we come to believe that that's the only way the world works or that's basically how things should be. For those of you who have had the stomach to follow some of the dialogue around um, what motivated the person who attacked uh, the, the store in Buffalo, there's been a lot of discussion like over the last couple of weeks around uh, concepts like um, you know, the great replacement, just this idea that like and like associated ideas that in the end, um, people of different races or different cultures or backgrounds are not meant to be together. That is inherently hostile. And if you actually follow through a lot of those those dialogues, if you read what people who are invested in, in these these philosophies say, you, you actually realize one of the assumptions that's going on is that they will they will point to the way the world is as evidence for their beliefs. They will say no. They'll say things like no country or empire has ever been successful with multiculturalism. That's what they would say. That that really, if you if you want to succeed as a society, multiculturalism isn't going to have to work because at the end, uh, you know, at the end of the day, well, I mean, what is what is life and what is uh, humanity except each of us? trying to preserve our own and get our own. What that, what that is doing, like in that chain of logic, is it's making an observation about the world that is actually true. Racism exists everywhere, all the time. It is actually extremely hard for people of different ethnicities to get along. Many, many, many times throughout history, it has failed. If you looked around the world, you might conclude that that's how it is. And therefore, I guess that's how it should be. If all that has happened to you is that you were born from a womb, then you may not be able to see or envision a world that could be differently. The followers of Jesus have been born again or born from above. We have a perspective that says, no, just because that's the way things are or the way things tend to be, that's not how things ought to be. And that's not how things will be. And it may be easy for you to say, I'm not a white supremacist. I don't believe in great replacement. I don't make those kinds of assumptions. But we all do. We all make assumptions like that. We're all tempted to, uh, in a way, we're all naive scientists. Some of us are scientists, scientists, where we're looking out into the world. 
We're observing the way the world is and we're making conclusions from that about the way things ought to be. We do it all the time. You have beliefs about how men or women should be based on your experience with how men and women tend to behave. Of course, filtered through your limited experience and your biases. We all have that. We even have ideas about how dating and relationships should be. We say, oh, men are like this or women are like that. And then you can cite evolutionary biology to say, this is what people do to try to hook up with other people. That's how that works. And you could be tempted to think that just because that's how it is, that that's how it ought to be. But those of us who've been born again are called to see with a different set of eyes. And that is the challenge that Jesus sets forth that stands for us to this day. Is being born again means being able to see spiritually about a world that doesn't exist right now, but is thin, it's close, it's right here if you can just embrace it and taste it. We're now going to transition into our time together as we do communion. This is a, a mystical union that, that we have with each other around Jesus and him being lifted up on the cross, sacrificing himself and revealing to us what God's love looks like. The testimony that we have for us in scripture says, for in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.